The Italian Wine Podcast is introducing a new donation drive this month. It's called Why Am I a Fan? We are encouraging anyone who tunes in on a regular basis to send us your 10-second video on why you are a fan of our podcast network or a specific show. We will then share your thoughts with the world with the goal of garnering support for our donation drive. Italian Wine Podcast is a publicly funded, sponsor-driven enterprise that needs you in order to continue to receive awesome free wine edutainment seven days a week. We are asking our listeners to donate to the Italian Wine Podcast by clicking either the GoFundMe link or the Patreon link found on italianwinepodcast.com. Remember, if you sign up as a monthly donor on our Patreon, we will send you a free IWP t-shirt and a copy of the Wine Democracy book, the newest Mama Jumbo Shrimp publication. Thanks for tuning in to Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People on the Italian Wine Podcast. I'm Steve Ray, your host, and this podcast features interviews with the people actually making a difference in the Italian wine market in America, their experiences, challenges, and personal stories. And I'll be adding a practical focus to the conversation based on my 30 years in the business. So if you're interested in not just learning how, but also how else, then this pod is for you. Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. I'm Steve Ray, your host, and I'd like to introduce you this week to uh, Chris Scott, who's host of the UK Wine Show. Chris, welcome to the show. G'day, mate. Not too bad. And yourself, Steve? I'm doing great. Uh, Bright and early for us, and it's afternoon for you. I first met you um, when you interviewed me for a podcast, and I knew nothing about podcasts at the time. Two years ago, maybe three, I think, um, at Wine to Wine, that event that Stevie Kim puts on in Verona every year. And in fact, we both are going to be there this year. We met a couple of years ago um, and you interviewed me. And I, I remembered it was really only the second time I'd ever been interviewed for a podcast. And I felt really nervous. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know how it would be used. I wouldn't know, didn't know how it would be um, impacted. Two years later, you're a guest on my show. I think that's pretty interesting. Did you have a comment on that? <laughs> uh, uh, no, but it just speaks to the volume that it is easy to do a podcast. And, um, you know, once people start to get into it, they realize that it's it's a great platform, I suppose. Uh, so for you to go from a zero to a hero in, in less than a year is pretty good going. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I would call it a hero, but uh, the listener stats are pretty significant. So, And I do get a lot of people coming up to me and saying that they, they, they listen to me, which is certainly personally rewarding. Okay. Well, give us a little background on you and uh, you in the wine industry particularly and the UK wine show and some of the other things that you're doing. Okay. So I got into wine. I like wine. Don't get me wrong. I've always liked wine. Me and my wife, when we were before we got to the wine trade, we used to go on holiday. We'd choose our holidays based on what wine region we want to go and visit. Uh, so, you know, I've always been an enthusiastic amateur, but um, it was never really meant to be a job for me. I'm an engineer, electrical engineer. I studied engineering. I quite like it. High voltage power systems, electricity markets. Not that in the UK, the electricity market's doing too well at the moment. <laughs> uh, but the, all that type of thing. And I really, I really like that. You know, I like um, solving problems. I'm a problem solver. Um, but we wanted to start our own business. And we looked at everything you could possibly think of. Everything from, I don't know, bikini waxing bars to uh, Subway sandwich franchises, <laughs> everything. And um, 
we were trying to work out a business that we could get into. And there was like, oh, I could go down engineering. Jane's going, oh, I could go down marketing. And, you know, we just couldn't come up with anything. There was too many opportunities. You know, when you first start out, the world's your oyster and you can do what you like. Uh, so we needed to narrow it down. And um, we were on holiday in Canada. Quebec. A friend of ours was getting married in Quebec, and after her marriage, we went to Niagara Falls, as we do. That's what we would do. We'd go to a wine region, uh, and I was sitting in um, in a Skillens vineyard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a Skillen, yeah. there, fairly famous one, drinking some of their Vidalice wine, and I had this moment of clarity. If you can think about that after a few glasses of wine, <laughs> and it was, you know what? I need to get paid to drink wine. So <laughs> we went, okay, we're going to join the wine trade. And then we came back and we looked at the industry because we said, okay, we've narrowed it down to a sector now. Um, we need to learn about the sector and we need to identify where we can make a difference. So we went off and did some WSET courses, level two and three, and uh, we started looking at the different makeup of the UK wine sector. And at the time, it was actually quite tricky because if you were a like wholesale, everybody goes, oh, I want to buy wine. So they, they all... Yeah, you see a lot of people do this and they'll go, oh, I'm going to buy some wine. So they'll buy a truckload of wine. And then the next step is they've got to sell the stuff. Uh, and selling, get, buying wine is really easy. It's the flogging that's the hard bit. Um, and we looked at things like becoming a wholesaler or moving into that market segment. But it seemed that you had to fund every restaurant's balance sheet uh, for quite some period of time before you could even think about getting a return. And the cash required was so vast to do it well. Um, we just didn't have the money and, and it was our first business. So I always fully expected us to fail. Um, you know, nine out of 10 businesses fail within the first few years. So we were like, okay, this is going to be our learning business, so to speak. So we'll, we'll start it and hopefully we'll learn some good skills and we won't lose too much money when it goes wrong uh, because we didn't really have much. I, I certainly didn't have much business now. So at that point anyway. So we, in the end, we looked at it and we went, okay, we need a low in, low cost entry business um, that will get us underway, that we can generate some cash reasonably quickly. And so we looked at it and we went, okay, we're going to do wine tasting. At the time, there was no one doing home wine tasting, going to people's houses or anything like that. So we said, okay, let's target that market segment and we'll, um, we'll start there. So that's where we started. 3050 became a, a home wine tasting. After a while, we expanded to corporate events, and then we expanded to WST events. Now we do every type of wine tasting you could possibly imagine. You know, if it involves booze, I'm into it. <laughs> at, at homes, this is, or do you do like corporate events where there's like, you know, 60, 80 people in an event or something? Yeah, yeah. on Friday, I was doing a, a big corporate event at a very flash hotel for 100 people. Um, you know, we'd still do things at people's homes. Um, there's a definite market segment for that. I'd say we probably do more. The value for us is in the corporate market uh, rather than the home market. Uh, and we also do a fair bit of WCT material uh, stuff as well. So that's all, all very good. So that's how you make money. That's that. Yeah, mainly. Mainly that's the way. So now let, let, let's turn the, the, the question to now the podcast, <laughs> which is not a moneymaker. <laughs> Talk about that. Well, yes and no. Yes and no. Um, so we started podcasting in 2006. Um, which makes me the world's first wine podcaster. There was um, great radio, but I bet them to the punch by about six months. And I don't think they're still broadcasting now, but they were the first in America and I was the first in the world. So, um, yeah, that was quite early days. And I remember talking to my guests at the time going, podcast, it's a bit like radio. <laughs> and, you know, you spend the first 20 minutes just explaining what podcasting is. 
Yeah, it's weird. Well, there is that whole theater of the mind thing that differentiated radio, differentiates radio from television, that it's only sound. And you kind of deduce the personality of uh, who you're listening to based on, you know, volume, uh, resonance, all that kind of stuff, the tonality and all that kind of stuff. So it is, it leaves a lot for engagement of the listener without having being part of the conversation, don't you think? Yeah, you definitely listen to the person. I like, I was at a tasting on Friday, as I was saying, and um, one of the guys I was talking to, they had an absolutely gorgeous voice, you know, it was, and, and you become acutely aware of it, possibly more uh, through podcasting than I normally would have uh, maybe 20 years ago before I started this role. So, you know, you, know you, you can definitely enjoy other people's voices now a lot more, perhaps. So, but what we were talking about was uh, you had laughed when I said the non-money-making side of it. So uh, jump back to that. Okay. So um, because I've been going for so long, um, over the years, we've picked up all sorts of work through podcasting, not directly, uh, mind you, but, you know, people listen to the show or whatever, and you'll do a load of consultancy work here and there, just because you've got a higher profile than a lot of people. Um, people come to you for stuff, uh, which is quite nice. Um, but we were... At that wine to one conference a couple of years ago, I think it was probably before COVID. It was, I think it was the year before COVID, so 2019 would be my guess. Yeah, I've been to wine to one a few times, and it might have been before I met you actually. Um, but I was on a panel talking about it and how to monetize podcasting, and I was like, Do you know what, guys? I don't bother, you know. And they go, How about audience attraction? I go, No, I don't care, you know. <laughs> I mean, I'm here, I, I always did podcasting because. I wanted to do podcasting. I'm a technical guy and this was a technological problem and it gave me a, a voice that not many people at the time could do. And so I was quite keen on it. Um, and also for me, I like to learn, you know, we've all got our buzzers and mine is I like to learn. And I found after I'd finished a two year diploma, well, it took me a little bit longer than two years, but we'll call it a two year diploma. Um, I stopped learning and it was like, well, how can I learn? Uh, well, I need to be able to talk to the really smart people, trap them in a room for an hour, and ask them anything I want. How can I do that? Oh. Italian Wine Podcast, part of the Mama Jumbo Shrimp family. How cool is that, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I absolutely align with that. That's really great. I've never articulated that way, but that's really the joy of it. Yeah, I love I love that type of thing. And just I ask people all sorts of strange questions because I mean I, I don't really have an agenda other than I'm trying to learn something for myself. And if people want to come along on the journey, I'm more than happy to share that journey. But you know, we've got patrons who pay us and things like that. So we get money from the the podcast itself. And I'll listen to what they say. You know, they they've got some things they want and I'll definitely cover it for those listeners. Um, it's not a problem, but I'm always thinking about what do I want to learn or what can I do uh, for me? And then everything else falls out from that. So I don't care too much about numbers. You know, people go on about numbers. I'm not worried about it. We've got pretty good numbers, but I'm not. I, I, to be honest, I haven't looked at them for a year. I really don't care. It's not going to make not going to make a difference, right? It's not going to change what you're doing. Yeah. No, we're not trying to sell advertising. We have people who ask us if we want to advertise. We'll go, yeah, yeah, if you want to, but we're not chasing anybody we're not trying to and we've never really bothered with it too much what we do though is because we've got that platform 
it's tied really nicely um, with our WSCT because our normal punter at our home tastings or our corporate events aren't necessarily the fully engaged type of person. My show's a little bit geeky at times. Um, you know, I'm quite happy hammering something quite hard and um, we do geek out. So it's not always perfect for the casual wine drinker. Um, it's more for the engaged enthusiast or someone in the trade. Um, to be honest, you know, you, you listen to my show because you want to learn stuff about wine. You don't listen to it because you're trying to fill in half an hour of light entertainment. Um, and so it doesn't really tie up with our key 3050 product range. But what we found was students doing WCT, it was right on their button. Uh, so after, I think it was the first time I was at Wine to Wine, and they said, you know, how do you uh, make money out of it? And I said, well, I don't really. <laughs> I thought about it. I thought, do you know what? I need to do something about this. We've got a platform. We've got a good situation. So let's do it. So that was about the same time as we started creating a load of WSCT products. So these are things like flashcards, exams, tasting guides, uh, all sorts of materials that we create. We sell internationally. Like you can put, We have a load of American buyers uh, for our product. Um, it's one of our big markets. And we started pushing our products through the show. And we sell, you know, we, we, we sell good margin on those products. And WCT and that higher end education side of things dovetails quite nicely with the show. And now we we ask, you know, people who do our courses, our level two and our level three, how they heard about us. And there's a it's probably only about ten or fifteen percent of people, but they listen to the show and that's why they chose us and uh, that's that's a nice bit of revenue because you make good money out of a wsc course so uh or you can we do monetize it quite well now but still not directly we'd never sell advertising or anything like that huh well i can go down that rabbit hole and coming from an ad agency owning one myself but uh, i won't i think uh where are your listeners obviously the title of the show is uk wine show are they predominantly uk or what percentage are they in and what other countries you would reference to that okay so Roughly, I think it's about 50% US, uh, maybe maybe 55. Uh, I haven't looked at it for a while, but it's it's predominantly US. And that's partly because, A, there's a lot of engaged people in the US. Also, it's a much bigger country in terms of population. So um, the, the US is number one. UK is number two. We're probably about 35% of listeners, maybe slightly higher, come from the UK. Uh, we've got listeners in Australia. Um Japan, strangely enough, uh, we were the number one wine show in China at one point. <laughs> Not going to do you much good these days, but especially if you're Australian wines. But yeah, so um, but that was still on small listenership. I don't think they had many English wine shows at that point running. Well, actually, this one is the Italian wine podcast is broadcast on Shimalaya. I don't know how to pronounce it, but also on uh, what other ones are, are you carried on? Uh, I presume SoundCloud, Stitcher. Yeah, I'm not so, uh, SoundCloud, probably. I can't remember if we are now or not. Uh, definitely Stitcher, Spotify, all the normal sort of streaming services. Um, I don't think we're on Prime. Uh, Amazon Prime, uh, but I'm not sure about that. I've, I haven't looked for it. Well, I'm, when, when I'm, I'm listening to you talk and, and thinking about the, the compare and contrast to what we're doing, and the interesting thing is, at least on mine, it's about 65% US, probably another 20% UK, then like 10% Italy, and then, you know, uh, resolves to some other things. So I, I think we're probably talking to similar audiences, although... Obviously, the subject matter is is a little bit different. So, if people did want to find your show, how would they uh, 
go and listen to it. Um, you can probably the easiest way is just type in UK Wine Show into Google and it will come up pretty well. If you go into any of the, the podcasting apps or anything like that, it will come up. Um, yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's pretty easy to find. And if you get desperate, I had a person uh, contact me. I don't believe people like this existed anymore, but uh, he said he wanted to uh, subscribe to the show. So I said some sort of the RSS feeds and uh, a guide to how to, to do it. And um, he wrote back saying, oh, I can't. I, I said, yeah, just do it on your phone. It'll be fine. He goes, I know I do everything on my Mac. 99% of my Mac. I need it. I can't do I can't listen to your show because I can't do it on a Mac. And I'm like, for goodness sake, 2006, there was no such thing as this phone. You had to do it on your computer. <laughs> so it's like, oh, God. So, yeah, but you can you can get it anywhere. Give uh, Tell us a little bit about 3050 and what's the origin of the name of the company? Uh, <laughs> well, in the old days, I used to do a little joke saying it's because I look 30 and my wife looks 50. Uh, however, she got... Really? How many times did you say that? <laughs> enough, enough. And, and when she was around as well, I'd get in the neck something chronic. It was hilarious. Uh, but now, sadly, both of us are over 50. So um, when we first started the business, it was 20 years ago. And I was, we were both in our 30s, but uh, it's a joke that's gone on a little bit long now, I think. Um, so or- originally, it's to do with latitudes where grapes grow. So... Most grapes grow between latitudes 30 and 50 degrees latitude. And I'm a big believer in the influence of climate on both the grape variety and the style of wines and even the price points that those wines can achieve. So if you understand latitude, you've got a fairly good understanding of climate. Once you've got climate, you know what's going to be produced where and the sort of um, issues associated with those vineyard areas. And you're sort of nine-tenths on the way to understanding what's going on. So I think it's a it's a nice, cool name. And um, a lot of people in the wine trade don't know it, even though it's one of the first things you get taught when you're, uh, if you do a WSD course. Uh, but it's, it's a cool name. And it's very much my philosophy in terms of just saying, like, something very simple. But if you dig into it, there's a lot of content. There's a lot of content. Um, that you could do. You brought up an interesting subject. A, a friend of mine just published a book. His name is Brian Friedman. The name of the book is Crushed. It's got some really great reviews, and I just finished it. And, and the focus is on um, wonderful stories about how climate change is influencing the production of wines and, and challenging, not just in things getting hotter or more unpredictable, but, you know, the uh, length of the growing season and all that kind of stuff in terms of grape ripeness and all that. What Have you guys, have you dug into that at all? Is that something you alluded to? It is that obviously a subject of interest. Oh, yeah. I think global warming is massive, important uh, to us. I think people are overstating it a little bit in terms of um, the implications. I mean, if you're a wine region, you just do what Bordeaux did. You know, all of a sudden, the grapes are getting a little bit too ripe. So what do they do? They introduce uh, Dariga Nacional as one of their grape varieties in AOC Bordeaux. So you're going to deal with it lots of ways. You, know, you can deal with it by just changing your grape mix. You know, and, and these will take... For those that are blends, that doesn't necessarily work so well in uh, Chianti. Yeah, but Chianti, Chianti's a pretty big blend these days. It's Sangiovese dominant, but you can chuck in all sorts of stuff into that blend. Yeah, I mean, in, in regions where they've, like in Europe, where they've said you must be this great variety and it's this, then obviously um, they'll have to change the rules. 
I mean, it's it's not like the, the everybody goes on about the Appalachians, you know, they're set in stone, but they're not. They're as flexible as the next business, uh, the next pound you can make out of it. Do you know what I mean? These Appalachians are always changing their rules left, right, and center, and they will. They'll continue, just like AOC Bordeaux introduced a load of great varieties. Yeah, but that was very slow in coming, and I think that was one of Brian's points, is that the old European regulatory entities are a lot, in contrast to what you said, slower to adapt than the climate is actually changing. Um, and that's a challenge. They're slow to adapt until they see the money on the wall and then they'll adapt very quickly. Um, they will change. You know, you can do all sorts of stuff. You know, you can just check, instead of going in north-south um, alignment on your grape varieties, you can just put yourself at a slight angle and all of a sudden the amount of uh, UV light your grapes get radically changes by replanting. You can still do that. You can plant in areas that are not south-facing but are north-facing or vice versa. You know, there's lots of things that people can do if they want to hold on to those grape varieties they don't have to just leave them there and do what they've always done and just pick a few months weeks earlier and a few weeks earlier and a few weeks earlier until you're getting green flavors and terrible wines well then you get them out of balance i, I was uh, talking to somebody the other day about chile and one of the areas that i had visited and i was very impressed by is the casablanca valley i don't know if you've ever been there and know, know much about it it was basically just pasture land very close to um, the ocean Global warming has impacted them significantly, but the thing that impacted them more than anything else is rabbits. The rabbits ravaged the vineyards, and so they basically left them or, or ripped them up. And many of those producers are moving to other parts, more extreme parts of Chile, further south towards Patagonia, further north to the Atacama Desert, which I find really intriguing. And if there was any one country that is going to be impacted by global warming because of its north-south orientation, it's it's Chile. But here's this region that 15 years ago didn't even exist. They built it up into something significant and had a global um, reputation for Sauvignon Blanc approaching, not directionally where uh, New Zealand is, and now it's being completely abandoned. I don't see that kind of thing happening in Europe. I, I read a wee bit about Casablanca, and I thought it wasn't just the rabbits, but it was also water tissues. Uh, they had some water yes. issues, not just rabbit issues. So I'm not sure that, you know, I only superficially know about that, uh, about them moving out of the area. Right. And I'm sure I'm not capturing it completely, but the idea is a radical decision was made. Um, and I, I, I don't see that happening because you don't have the history in South America. Casablanca, they just discovered, is a good place. And yeah, they can choose the hillsides that they're on. But if you're in Bordeaux, you can't say, OK, I'm going to move over to another or Burgundy. I'm going to turn over to a south-facing slope. There's about 8,000 people that own that vineyard. It'd be pretty hard to buy it or trade it or change it. Yeah, but you've got places like uh, Burgundy. They've got quite a while. They've got a few degrees in temperature not before they have to get too desperate about, you know. So what, you lose a little bit of typicity and it's a little bit riper and the wines taste a little bit better. Okay. <laughs> so let's get, let's talk a little bit about target audience and not necessarily so much in behavior, meaning whether they're geeky or not, but um, it seems very popular these days to talk about um, Gen Z, especially in the US, Gen Z and millennials and with very different sets of values, different ways, you know, they're digitally native as uh, Paul Mabray likes to say. And they look at the world differently and they consume information about wine differently. Are you adapting your podcast to address these audiences at all? Not really, no. <laughs> Sorry to say we are not. As I say, I do what I want to do and I do it. Uh, that said, podcasting is the trendy thing at the moment. The, the fact that I'm sort of been going for 18 years and the rest of the world's caught up means that I'm nicely positioned for Gen Z and millennials. 
but they're they're just coming on board now <laughs> more than anything else. Well, okay, speculate if you will then about Gen Z and millennials and how they find out about wine. You talk to a lot of people, you see all that kind of stuff. Um, and and in, in respect to podcasting is what I'm really talking about here. Okay. Um, so from all the conferences I go to, <laughs> and they sort of say, where do they get the information from? It's usually associated, they get the information from friends or family or social media. So they're, they're not necessarily getting information from authoritative voices or historically from where a lot of people used to get the information was from some sort of authoritative voice. Um, and that's why you've seen the rise of some of those um, um, ratings apps and all that sort of thing where you get um, a lot of people saying, oh, I like this wine or I don't like this wine. The problem that you get with that is that the thing with wine is that some people love a certain wine, some people hate exactly the same wine. And if you go for a, a crowd effect, which is where Gen Z are getting a lot of their information from, what you land up with is some mushed up middle ground. Um, you know, I was talking to the guy who um, did Vivino and they're talking about their ratings a few years ago. And I was like, you know, I bet your average score is something like 4.3. And it was no, it was 4.3 something or other. Do you know what I mean? Because whenever we've done analysis on ratings, right, yeah, 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 because yeah, yeah. especially those polar wines where some people hate it and some people love it, it all still lands up with about the same number. So the problem you get is you get people gravitating to the same styles of wine, and you get the people who like might really like high acid Chablis, that, and some people really can't stand high acid wines, and they're going to miss out on that opportunity. So I do think. Um, the problem you get with a lot of crowdsourced information is you land up with averages and you do get the opportunity for people to say, I really like this, but then it's really hard to know whether you will like that just because someone else really likes it. Wine's one of those things where there's so many different styles out there and some people really don't like certain styles and some people really like certain styles. And if you take your information from friends, they might like a particular style. And if you listen to them enough, eventually you'll start liking that style because we are plastic, plastic in our in our taste preferences. But you know, we we see that in the U.S. A friend of mine once said, uh, you know, the only thing that happens when you're in the middle of the road is you get run over by a truck. It's <laughs> yeah. kind of a nice metaphor. And a lot of the people that you talk to, and certainly the wine that I personally like and drink and experience when I travel around the world. Um, are the not the outliers, but not in the middle, not the mainstream Napa Cabernets, and I don't know much about the U.S. market, but um, things like you know Italy, everything from uh, Rio to Sagrantino de Montefalco to Vermentino. Um, yeah, I drink a lot of uh, Sangiovese, uh, but a lot of variants on Sangiovese, like Montepulciano, uh, Vino Nobile de Montepulciano, and so forth. So there's a lot to discover within even the traditional areas and people doing things differently. Do you think that can be a commercial success for marketers in the U.S. to be doing things, to do things differently? Well, it comes down to how they're going to reach their product to market. And the, one of the problems you get with Italy is that there's a lot of small producers and quite often you need to have some sort of volume to do. I, I, I did a really interesting podcast actually a couple of weeks ago uh, about why some wines are popular and some wines are not so popular. And the first thing that, that, that came up was you've got to have volume. If you want to be a popular wine, you need to be able to quench the thirst of a lot of people. 
And if you can't quench that thirst, you're not going to be popular. Right. Um, and the problem with Italy is there's a lot of really small regions where they're going to, you know, Pinot Grigio can, but that's about it in terms of a lot of the, the sort of regions. It's really hard to get that volume there um, to be able to quench that thirst if it does become popular. Um, and so, and the problem with that is that you also, to get a large population, of what people liking your wine, you normally go for the that middle road as well, right. which is yeah, a little bit said. disappointing. And the great thing about Italian wines is, you know, the Italians love tannins. They're into that sort of thing. And if you like tannins, Italy is a fabulous place to go visiting for red wines. Um, but not everybody does. You know, about a third of the population can't stand them. They've got almost a negative uh, to them. And if you take all your advice from someone else who doesn't like tannins, then you're never going to be able to engage with them and tenants of those. Yeah, and I, I think you hit on a really important point. In the U.S., scores are counted uh, because it's a language that everybody understands, even though it's not a very accurate language. And it's just a score of someone's, however that evaluation entity is structured scoring. It's, it may be measuring quality, but people interpret it as, oh, I would like that because it had a 92, but it's very possible that if it's a highly tannic wine and you don't like tannic wines, or it's a, it's a low acid wine and you prefer high acid wines with your food, you're not going to agree with that. I, I don't want to go off on the tangent of, of um, scores, but coming back to marketers, how can brands use mark, podcasting as marketing or communications tools? And, and if you could distinguish between the two marketing and communications tools okay so marketing's pretty straightforward you can just take an ad you know you can reach an audience and the nice thing about podcasting is they do have quite specific markets that they're targeting uh, getting information out of them about from the podcaster about who their demographic is might be a bit tricky but um, there's certain markets for it so you can approach it uh, from a advertising point of view most podcasters will rip your hand off to to, to take advertising um, in terms of except you and me, I, yeah, think. <laughs> I just don't care. Um, but the other thing is um, getting getting your message across on a podcast isn't that hard because you know podcasters need to produce content. They're all done on a shoestring, so they're always looking for content, especially content that that is easy for them. Um, because you know, I I have to do my entire show in one day from start to scratch. It's a day, and that includes writing news articles and recording the interview and everything. Otherwise, if it goes over a day, I've lost too much time to be able to invest in it. So, people who are competent, who can speak well on a topic, and they have a hook, you know, they can get on shows and they can then use that as an opportunity to spread their their word. And it's much more powerful than you'll ever get with an ad. Anyway, I switch off as soon as I hear ads. I go out of my way not to listen to ads. I probably, you know, I, if there's a service that doesn't have an ad or a service that's ad supported, I'll always go for the one that doesn't have an ad. I don't like ads. Uh, I know in America, there's, you get them thrown down your throat, but I, I, I avoid them like the plague. So content is a great way of reaching the audience and it's much more natural and it's more likely to be lasting as well. I think so too. It's, and it's the case of the, the, the hundreds or the true audience. There's a very small audience of a very small number of the true audience that you want to reach who are influential to others. And I'm not talking about orchestrating a whole viral marketing thing. I've, I've said many times viral is an outcome, not a strategy. 
but if you talk to the true believers, they become the evangelists to carry your word, perhaps even more so now than there are publications out there, whether it's we're talking about print, electronic, broadcast, or uh, things like, like podcasts. So let's move a little further down the road. And where do you see, you've been in it since 2006, one of the founders of it, where do you see podcasting going in the next, say, two, I'm calling them kind of sort of post-COVID years. I mean, we're going to live with this forever, but um, with the growth of TikTok reels and other video-based social tools, why is podcasting so vibrant today when it's only theater of the mind? And where's it going? Okay, so it's got something over video that you can't have. And that is, you can listen to a podcast when you're driving, you're running, you're walking. You can do content or entertainment uh, anytime you want doing another activity. So anytime you've got a, a mental downtime, that's an opportunity for a podcast. Whereas TikTok, you have to be a lot more active, involved and engaged in searching for the content than, um, than if you're on a podcast. So it's a different market. Um, and also, if you like for me, I go for runs. I can just switch off from the run and into the podcast, and I'm absorbed by it while I'm doing something. And I, it's fabulous. It's great. So it's definitely got its own place. Um, I think the future of podcasting is it's, I think when things like uh, Spotify came in, um, they were quite important because all of a sudden they started creating a gatekeeper approach. Remember, when Spotify first came in, they wouldn't let anybody, it wasn't just anybody they would let on their platform. They, would, they were doing, uh, it, I mean, for us, we spent ages getting on the Spotify platform. It was an absolute pain in the neck um, because they were like, no, you must go through a media partner to contact us and all this. Stuff. And we, we do everything ourselves. You know, I wrote the RSS feed builder and everything, you know. So we never had a, um, a media partner do it. So we couldn't get on it for a long, long time. What, what you're going to see is uh, you're going to see more networks of podcasts appearing. Um, so Twit is a, a great technological network on uh, for podcasting. But there are other... TWIT? Yeah, TWIT. Twit. Yeah, Leo Laporte. He's a, a, he's a computer geek. Um, but he's got a massive network of podcasts. He makes a brilliant living out of being running um, huge numbers of podcasts. I mean, they, they're producing two or three podcasts a day sort of thing. Uh, and it's a fabulous network. So you're going to get these, this consolidation into networks. You're going to see um, a lot of more marketing advertisement becoming available and, and, and funneled through it. So when I first started, I remember trying to get advertising on the show probably 10, 15 years ago. There just wasn't infrastructure in place for it. Now there's a lot of infrastructure, and I think that infrastructure will get more sophisticated and the ability to target the audience will become better. That's a key part that podcasters may be lacking is the ability to actually communicate the numbers and explain what the demographics are. That will get slicker. Um, and also the shows are getting much slicker. You know, um, poor old me and Jane, we're still, you know, we're still me and Jane doing our podcast. A um, little bit of jingles and that, but, you know, some of these podcasts are very, very slick. And you're seeing people who have gone through media training now producing podcasts. So the quality of the shows is becoming much, much better. Um, you know, I'm going to rely on content for my audience rather than pack uh, cool jingles. But there's a lot of really good content being developed and the quality of that content is improving. Good. So there's a future there. That's nice to know. Um... Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. And radio's dead. I wouldn't want to be in radio. Radio's dying. Podcast is killing radio. 
They say TV killed the radio. No, podcast is going to kill radio. I don't even know if radio is relevant to um, kids these days and whether they even listen to it. That's what I mean. Exactly. So we're coming uh, to the end of our time. One of the things that I like to do at the end of my podcast is um, ask the guest for what's the big takeaway? You know, uh, kind of think about what we've been talking about here. But remember that people are only going to take away one maybe two or three, but I like to focus on just one thought. What can people listening, assuming that they're most in the trade, take away from this and put to work immediately? Is there a practical thing that we talked about that somebody can say, oh, I heard this on a podcast today and I'm going to do that? In what aspect of it? We chatted a lot about all sorts of things. <laughs> well, yeah, really what I'm asking is for you to just kind of pick one that uh, particularly resonated with you. Okay, so when we're talking about climate change, and I said, look, don't get as stressed as um, as as uh, most people are about it. Don't get me wrong, I'm a big believer in climate change. I'm not a climate denier in any way, shape, or form. You know, I've just been a fortune on insulating my home or uh, office, and doing. You know, I'm absolutely one hundred percent trying to do my bit in this thing. Um, agriculture as a sector is always under pressure. Wine is an agricultural product. However, the bans, as climate change happens, where things happen will change. But places like the UK become, will become more profitable for wine production. But places that are uh, hot and on the marginal end are hot, like parts of the central parts of Australia, which are getting drier perhaps, there may become less profitable. And all you're going to see is things will move. And as they move, you'll still have the same range of styles. The styles will just come from different places because, as we said, Burgundy, you know, their wines will start becoming riper. They might move from a stone. The whites might move from a stone fruit to a pineapple flavor profile, but they're still wines to be excellent. Um, so you'll see things change, but the wine's still going to be there. People will adapt to it. Um, so I don't I'm, I'm, I'm not worried about the wine industry globally. I'm worried about certain parts of the wine regions, certain wine regions that have got particular issues that might make them less profitable. But I think overall, the wine industry is not necessarily going to be a bad, bad place for global warming. Um, and people get really worried about it. It's like the UK is doing everything they can to try and mitigate. Well, they were until we got into government anyway. But uh, we was doing quite a bit to try and mitigate global warming within zero carbon. UK agriculture is going to be one of the big winners out of global warming. You know, it, 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 the numbers say its agricultural sector, especially Scotland, will become more productive. So things are going to change and there's going to be losers for sure. Let's not back around and there's going to be some big losers. It's also going to be some big winners as well. Um, that's not to say we're not, we shouldn't try and do it but um, and manage it. And I do as much as I can to do that. But... Sometimes people, they get a little bit hysterical about it and they um, they get over excited about it. There's going to be losers. There's going to be winners. It's a disaster. We need to manage it. But the wine industry as a whole will still produce wine in 50 years' time. There you go. Great. Okay. So we're talking this week with uh, Chris Scott of the UK Wine Show. Uh, Chris, if people wanted to get in touch with you or listen to the show or contact you or find more about you, what are, what, what's your email, phone, website? Uh, how can they reach you? Yeah, after saying that about global warming, I'm not sure I want to give it out. <laughs> no crazies. No crazies need respond. Yeah. Uh, so it's uh, chris.scott at 3050, T-H-I-R-T-Y-F-I-F-T-Y, 3050, like in those uh, wine regions, uh, .co.uk. 
Uh, the podcast is UK Wine Show. Uh, it is definitely a good show if you want to engage and learn lots. Uh, if you're looking for light entertainment, it's probably not the show for you. Uh, and if you're studying WCT, we have the best range of products, flashcards, mock exams, levels one, two, and three, and now diploma as well. So uh, you can get your get all the study material you need from us as well. <laughs> well, great. Well, now there's a perfect example of how to embed marketing content into it. But of course, we didn't make any money on it. <laughs> So there's that. Anyway, <laughs> this is Steve Ray on uh, how to get U.S. market ready with Italian wine people on the Italian Wine Podcast channel saying thank you for listening. Chris, thank you. It's a delightful conversation. I look forward to seeing you uh, in a couple Cheers. of weeks uh, or next month at Wine to Wine. And thank you for joining us. Thanks again for listening. This is Steve Ray with Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People on the Italian Wine Podcast.